You don't have to live very long in this world before someone will hurt or wound you in a deep way. It may be a person who insults you, mistreats you, or betrays you. It may come from someone you barely know or worse, from someone very close. It may be a hurt that stings after years or even decades, or it may have been something that happened just this week. When we get hurt, it raises the issue of forgiveness. Now, it's easy to talk about forgiveness when you're not feeling hurt or rejected or betrayed, but when your heart is broken by something cruel, something that someone has done to you, it's an entirely different matter. In fact, it's probably not a stretch to say that forgiveness is one of the most unnatural things that we can be asked to do. This week I read the story of a guy who lives in Colorado. Um, he happens to, to earn a little extra money. He works as an umpire uh, umping uh, softball games during a summer league. And a few years ago he was pulled over by a police officer for going a little fast. He begged for mercy. The officer didn't give him any, gave him a ticket. And so a few months later he was umping a game. When the first batter came to the plate, he recognized him. The officer recognized the ump as well. And as he stepped into the batter's box, the officer said, We good? And the ump said, swing at everything. <laughs> Forgiveness isn't natural, but revenge is. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a story about a man who was wounded. He was hurt, maybe in a fight or some other way. His name is Lamech. And he responded by killing the man who'd hurt him. And he said, I will seek revenge 77 times if anyone else hurts me. What he did and what he said became known as the law of Lamech. Not necessarily the 77, but the principle of, if you hurt me, I will pay you back. And that's the way many think about these things today. Which brings us to our story for today. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the stories that Jesus told during his time here on earth. Stories designed to uh, communicate important spiritual truths. And we call these stories parables. They challenge us, encourage us or give us a perspective on how Jesus sees things. And they tackle many of life's most important questions. And again, today's topic is forgiveness. The story begins in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And so I'd like you to uh, either follow along on the screen or pick up one of the Pew Bibles. It's on page 1499, page 1499. Again, beginning with Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And the way the story begins is that Peter, who's one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, approaches him and asks him a question. And the question is, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And then he asks the question, up to seven times? Now, we don't know exactly why Peter asked the question, although I, my guess is, is it wasn't just about curiosity. Most likely, someone close to Peter had heard him, done him wrong, not once, but repeatedly. And because of that, Peter is trying to struggle through what it means for him to forgive because he knew that that was what he was supposed to do. Although his question here is not really, am I supposed to forgive, but it's what are the limits on forgiveness? How many times do I actually have to do this? And then probably thinking he's sounding very magnanimous, he says, up to seven times. Now there's some precedent for why he said that. It wasn't a new question. The religious authorities of the days had wrestled with it. And there was one rabbi who suggested that you forgive once, you forgive twice, you forgive three times, but the fourth time, you seek revenge. So Peter may have taken that rabbi's teaching, doubled it, added one, that's a holy number, the number of seven, and felt really great about his proposal to Jesus, expecting a pat on the back. But Jesus didn't agree with Peter. Instead, he says in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. 
So Peter's jaw at this point must have dropped. He certainly didn't see that coming. Now, some of you know that there are translations that don't say 77 times. They say 70 times 7 or 490 times. Now, the point here actually is not about the number. The the point's the same. There is no limit to forgiveness. What Jesus is doing is reversing that law of Lamech, the, the idea that when someone hurts you, you respond and pay them back. He's telling Peter and the others that there is no limit on the number of times that they will be required to forgive. In fact, if you're still counting, instead of forgiving, you're merely postponing revenge. Now, I don't think he's scolding Peter as much as he is pointing out that when we are wronged, we have a choice. We can either implement the idea of reciprocity, that's the law of Lamech, or we can do the Jesus way and forgive. Now, at this point in Matthew's biography of Jesus, it moves from a question or a conversation between Peter and Jesus to a story that Jesus tells. And he begins the story this way in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, a great deal of ink has been spilled, wasting, or in my opinion, wasted, to trying to figure out how much money this man owed the king. Some suggest that this 10,000 bags of gold was as much as the entire GDP of the entire nation of Israel. I don't really think the point is 10,000 or any other kinds of, uh, of bags of gold. It's just that Jesus ex- is exaggerating to show the magnitude of the debt that this man owes. So you might say, as we would have said when we were kids, he owed him a gazillion and a half dollars. In other words, even if his whole family were sold as slaves, all his possessions sold at an auction or on Craigslist, only a small portion of the money would have ever been repaid. So the servant did the only thing that he could think of, and that is he begged for mercy. In verse 26, it says, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. But you know that's an empty promise. With a debt he couldn't repay in a hundred lifetimes, even if he was working as a hedge fund manager, Jesus then shocks everyone with the next twist in the plot. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What happens here is amazing. You'll notice that the servant asks for patience, but the king does something different. He gives him compassion. Instead of giving him a deadline or putting him on a payment plan, he writes off the debt entirely, something the man didn't even ask for. What the king shows the man is what the Bible calls grace, wholly undeserved yet freely given. Whenever Jesus tells a story, he isn't telling us to go look around and see who it applies to. He's actually asking us to think about what it means for us. So he's saying to us, look at your own heart and ask, what does this mean to you? What we need to understand here is the extent of the debt that we owe to God. Now, we like to think of ourselves as pretty good people. But Jesus says, nope, you're not. You see, we're broken, sinful people. And even the good we do is often motivated by a desire to impress or to please others. The mistaken belief that we think we can earn God's favor and put Him in our debt. Or even the desire to manipulate others so that we get something for what we do for them. Jesus' point here is that because of our sin, we all owe God an unpayable moral and spiritual debt. So if this were a meritocracy, the rule would be you owe, therefore you pay. But even then, we need to understand that while we are more sinful and broken than we ever dared to imagine, that in Jesus, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. 
And that's why Jesus died on the cross. We're in the season of Lent, and in a few weeks we'll be in Holy Week. And the story of Holy Week is when we commemorate Jesus' journey to the cross. That's the heart of the Christian message. It's on the cross that Jesus died the death that we deserved to release us from a debt we cannot pay, the debt for our sin and rebellion. And yet, in what Jesus did on the cross, that debt is paid in full. Now, let's go back to the story for a moment and think of what this guy must have been thinking. He'd gone to see his boss, the king. He'd gotten in way over his head in debt. But instead of being thrown into debtor's prison or being subjected to an austere repayment plan, he walks away scot-free. And you can just imagine the relief. Finally, he can breathe again. And then he sees a business partner, a former acquaintance who owes him a few thousand dollars. And, well, Jesus tells us what happens next. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred sil- or a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Please, be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. I don't know if you noticed the irony in the text, but he grabs this man by the throat, demands his money back, and the poor man, gasping for air, falls to his knee and says virtually the same thing that this man had said to the king. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But, Jesus says, he refused. Now, if you were surprised by the king's willingness to forgive this man's debt, you are now supposed to be surprised and outraged at his unwillingness to uh, forgive a much more trivial debt owed this man by his neighbor. So here's a man who's received pure grace. He owes quite literally his freedom, his family, his possessions, everything he has to the grace of this king. But then he goes out and finds someone who owes him a few thousand dollars and demands repayment in full immediately. It's no wonder that some of the other servants who are watching this unfold have a strong reaction. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. You can almost hear those who are listening to the story saying, can you imagine the nerve of that guy? After all the king did for him, he would treat Joe that way. It's just so cold. And that's exactly the kind of reaction Jesus wanted them to have to be outraged at this man's behavior. But he also wants more. He wants those listening to the story to put themselves into the story. And just in case they can't make the connection on their own, he concludes the story this way. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So the message here couldn't be clearer. We've, offended, uh, we've been offered an incredible gift, forgiveness from a debt we cannot pray, the debt of sin we've racked up over the course of a lifetime. And again, we like to think of ourselves as pretty good people, but we're not. In small and in large ways, we've rebelled against God, and we know it. Now, Jesus has released us from the consequences of what we've done. And so we are to do in a similar way. Jesus asks just one thing of us, and that is to extend forgiveness to others. I forgive you, the king says to the man, but you wouldn't even forgive the smallest of debts. It's just not the way it works around here. Forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Or as St. Paul would later put it in Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other 
just as in Christ God has forgiven you. This last verse, verse 35, is a sobering verse because it asks something of us that we're not always sure we can do. Jesus is saying, forgiven people forgive because they've experienced the forgiveness of God. And immediately you want to say, well, but you don't know what she did to me. Or you don't understand how badly he hurt me. And we want to start making qualifications. But the truth is, Jesus does understand. That's why St. Paul also said this in Colossians 3.13. He said, forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And the word there for grievance is not just a minor annoyance, but it's a real grievance. So how often are we to do this? Well, we started there today, as many times as it takes. That's what forgiven people do. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, clearly we need to learn to forgive, but forgiveness is complicated. And I can already hear all of the objections, all the questions, all of the comments, all of the things you're wrestling with. So it might be helpful for us to, re- to spend a little time talking about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. A few years ago, after reading this story, I wrote out my own list of ideas about forgiveness. So I reviewed that this week and revised it a bit. And here are some ideas that have been helpful to me over the years when we think about forgiveness. And the first idea is that forgiveness isn't indifference. In other words, it isn't just saying, whatever. We're to care deeply about justice. Now, it might be relatively easy to ignore an inconsequential slight or a a careless comment. But it's much harder to ignore an act of cruelty. But I don't believe that Jesus is asking us to give people a free pass. Now, we're going to excuse a child who spills a glass of milk on the pizza in the middle of the table or a friend who happens to show up at the right time at the wrong caribou when we're meeting for coffee. Similarly, though, the idea here is that forgiveness isn't indifference. It also isn't letting people off the hook. If someone does something wrong, especially if it's criminal, we are still to hold them accountable. That means we will confront and restrain and see that there is appropriate punishment. That's because forgiveness takes injustice seriously. But whenever we do seek justice, we're to do so in love, which means we have the desire to see the person restored. And we will never seek vengeance. We will leave the judgment piece to God. Furthermore, forgiveness always costs something. Injustice requires justice. The debt has to be paid. Either we pay or they pay. And some of you have experienced that. Even in the process of forgiving, there's a little bit of a cost, sometimes a huge cost. To forgive is to bear it rather than making someone else bear the cost. And the cost for God's forgiveness for us is Jesus' death on the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross, God destroyed evil without destroying us. So understand that forgiveness always costs something. In addition, and this is the point Jesus is trying to make in this story, forgiveness is only possible with God's grace. We can't forgive until we've been transformed by God. Until we've begun to experience God's extravagant love and forgiveness we will not be able to learn to forgive. So forgiveness begins with understanding the magnitude of our debt and the extravagance of God's love. And it's only when we experience that forgiveness that we can even begin to forgive others. And it's in our experience of forgiveness, our experience of God's love, that we realize there's nothing God cannot ask of us, including to learn to forgive others. Finally, and I think this is really important, we need to learn to distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation. The holy grail is when two people who have hurt each other sit down and talk about how one or both of them have hurt the other. When they take responsibility 
when they apologize, when they do what they can to restore the relationship. Let me just say reconciliation is really hard. It takes time. And unless everyone's willing to play ball, it can be impossible, impossible to rebuild the trust and respect if we're unwilling to take responsibility and apologize. This is really important because Jesus is not telling us here to suck it up and forgive and forget as though nothing has happened. That's not only unrealistic, it can also be unhealthy. The key, however, is that we should never give up making forgiveness and reconciliation the goal. Reconciliation will often be a process, and the only way for the process to begin is if we start with an attitude of forgiveness, not revenge. So when someone does this, here's what I've seen happen. I've seen an offer of forgiveness reciprocated with repentance. And by repentance, I don't just mean saying, oops. Instead, the acknowledgement of a wrong behavior, a sincere sense of regret and remorse, and a commitment to change for the better. We are asked by Jesus to extend forgiveness, but that doesn't mean we do so naively. But we'll never seek revenge. There are times when it is right and appropriate to insist that the perpetrator of a crime be held accountable. And while reconciliation is the ideal, there are times in cases of abuse, for example, when it may be impossible. Not only impossible, but maybe unwise. But what Jesus is telling us is that we can still choose to forgive, even if it's necessary for us to break off contact with someone else. Forgiveness means giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. It means releasing the bitterness and anger and desire for revenge. It means letting God be the judge. And the one who will deal out justice to the person in the end, the person who has hurt us. And forgiveness requires God's grace because we cannot forgive on our own. When you've been hurt, it can feel impossible to forgive. But when we fully grasp what Jesus has done for us, his grace given us through his death on the cross, then we can begin to forgive and let go of that desire for revenge. How do you know that you've forgiven someone? Not when uh, you have forgotten what they've done, because let me just say, you're probably never going to forget, especially if the pain is deep. But it's when we still remember the pain and yet no longer wish the other person harm. In fact, you wish them well. That may be hard and it may be a long journey, but I've seen it happen. One of my best friends went through a divorce a few years ago. I've known him for over 30 years. Uh, He was in my wedding. I was in his wedding. What his now ex-wife did to him in the process of that divorce, I wouldn't wish on anyone. She hurt him deeply, and I don't believe there's much hope for reconciliation. But I've watched him forgive her. He's told me, and I believe he's sincere, that he wishes the best for her. And with all that's happened, I'm impressed because I'm not sure I wish the best for her. Several years ago, I had lunch with an old friend. Um, His son at the time was 16, and like a lot of 16-year-old boys, his judgment wasn't always the best. And a couple of months before we had lunch, his son had wrecked one of the family cars. Not badly, but enough that between the damage and the deductible and the increased insurance cost, my friend said it was going to cost him about $2,500 that year. So the son agreed, together with his father, a little bit of a conversation, that his son would get a summer job so he could pay back that debt, that $2,500, the increased cost for the accident. So his son diligently, he said, my friend said, started looking for a job, but he just couldn't find anything. And as first week of May, second week of May stretched on, and he was getting closer to summer, he began to panic, and then he got a job offer from a camp in Colorado. It's a camp that he had been to, he had always wanted to work at, and he got an offer to work there, but there was a catch, and that was that his pay 
was going to be $50 a month. Now, just add it up. It's going to take a lot of months. You can't do that in the summer. So my friend knew that this camp would be good for his son, but he also knew it would be impossible for his son to pay back the debt. So he did something that, at least to his son, was totally unexpected. He said, son, do you want to take the job? And his son said, yeah, but what about the money I owe? Well, his dad said, work hard at the camp, and if at the end of the summer I get a good report, you don't have to pay. And the kid went, really? And his dad said, yeah. And then he described how humorous it was watching a six-foot, two-inch, 225-pound, 16-year-old cry. Because $2,500 was an astronomically large sum of money to a 16-year-old. So when his dad offered to forgive the debt, this boy was grateful. If we're honest, we'll admit that we are more broken and sinful than we ever imagined. But in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are also more loved and cherished and accepted than we ever dared to hope. And that's why Jesus came to earth. It's why he lived the life that we could never have lived. He died the death that we deserved and rose again to release us from the massive debt that we owed for our sin. It's an offer that comes to us and it requires a decision. Each one of us has to decide. The decision to repent, to believe, and to commit to follow Jesus. The Bible calls the offer that Jesus gives us grace. It's God's grace that when it takes root in our hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we learn to forgive those who've hurt us because we understand that we are forgiven people. It's not easy. It takes prayer. It's spiritual work. It will probably take time, but we can get there. So the question today is, who do you need to forgive? Is there some great injustice or maybe just something trivial that's just kind of consumed you for the last week or so? Is there someone, or maybe more than one, someone that you're having difficulty forgiving? An ex-husband or a teacher or a coach or a boss or a classmate or a neighbor or a parent or a friend or a brother or a sister? Again, this process will not be easy. You may need the help of a trusted friend or even a trained professional. But our God is a forgiving God. A God who has forgiven us and then asks us to extend that same forgiveness to others. And when we let go of the resentment and the anger and learn to forgive those who've hurt us, we will find a freedom that we did not imagine possible. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Grateful for this story that Jesus told. Um, Grateful but also humbled. Humbled and even maybe a little bit... I don't know, angry or or frustrated because we know that we have to let go of something that maybe feels almost impossible to let go of. Father, I pray that you would help us to see a way forward, to see that we can be freed up from the resentment, from from the hurts, from the things that have happened to us, and we can forgive. And Father, I pray that even more than forgiveness can take place, that we might be able to be reconciled with those from whom we've been estranged. Pray, Father, for wisdom to know how to approach every situation that we find ourselves in and that you would work your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.